The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs, who today is joining us from New York City. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, today we're going to be returning to the environment. It's a topic that we actually uh, haven't spent much time on over the past year. And I really feel like almost as if it's it's been this secondary issue. Even going back to FOCAC, uh, environmental issues in the China-Africa relationship were put to a back burner, and in part, we're guilty of that. The problem is, is that the environmental story hasn't gone away, and it is still very, very important. And a, and a really interesting report came out uh, a couple weeks ago on illegal logging in the Congo River Basin. And now, really, this is something very important because we talked about this story almost 10 years ago with Johanna Janssen, who was a Congolese-China researcher, and she talked about the natural resources extraction business in Gabon. And here we are 10 years later talking about the same thing. Now, the Congo River Basin is a massive region in Central Africa that includes 10 countries and encompasses 500 million acres. It's, imagine this, the second largest tropical rainforest in the world. Now, try to picture this on a map because it's hard to kind of visualize where is this massive 500 million acre zone. It starts on the western border of Uganda, touching on Rwanda and Burundi, and then stretches right through the DRC, brushing up against the Central African Republic in Cameroon until it reaches the coast of Gabon and Equatorial Guinea on the other side of the continent. Now, tens of millions of people live here. It's home to 10,000 species of tropical plants, 400 species of mammals, and thousands of species of birds. It goes without saying that this is one of the planet's most important ecological uh, environments anywhere, and particularly in this era of global warming. But it's also a source of some of the world's best timber, and that is being clear-cut at a breathtaking speed. And there's a toxic mix right now of corruption, poverty, greed, and really a total disregard for the environmental consequences of what happens when a precious ecosystem like this is destroyed. Yes, it's it it has massive implications for everyone, not just not just for the people in the region, uh, because the Congo Basin essentially key uh, stores up to ten percent of the of the world's carbon, um, and it you know kind of it's it's a massive um, mitigation for global warming. Um, so the loss uh, of the trees actually will affect all of us and will hasten global warming around the world. The U.S.-based Environmental Investigation Agency has just completed a four-year investigation into the illegal timber trade in the Congo Basin, focusing specifically on timber from Gabon and the Republic of Congo. And what they found is that a lot of wood is being illegally sourced from this region and making it all the way into the U.S. and European supply chains and onto store shelves at places like Home Depot and Menards. And some of it, ironically, is even being labeled (laughs) eco-friendly. Now, EIA found that companies from Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, and others are all active in the logging business there. But one company in particular, 
a Chinese firm called Dejia stood out. We'll find out more about them in a second. And this really shouldn't come as a surprise, though, because China is now the most important non-African country in the Congo Basin logging industry. Uh, back in the 19th century, during the colonial era, it was hugely important. This was a region that was really a prize for the Europeans who exploited the Congo Basin's wood, rubber, and other natural resources. Today, though, Chinese firms now account for 46% of exports from the Congo Basin, making them far and away the most important foreign players that are operating there. So let's learn a little bit about the EIA report. And for that, we're thrilled to have on one of its authors who joins us on the line from Washington, D.C. Lisa Handy is a senior policy advisor at the Environmental Investigation Agency, who's also an expert in illegal logging, wildlife trafficking, and forest conservation. Lisa, very good morning to you, and thank you for joining us. Good morning to you, Eric and Kobus. Thank you for having me. So I set it up a little bit uh, just to kind of explain what is the Congo Basin, who is this company, De Jia. Uh, you guys spent four years on this report. It's called Toxic Trade, Forest Crimes in Gabon and the Republic of Congo and Contamination of the U.S. Market. So before we focus specifically on the ch this Chinese company and China's role in general, why don't you just give us a very brief overview of what some of your findings were in this report? Sure. Thank you. Um, well, as you stated, I mean, the Congo Basin uh, forest region is is absolutely critical to those living in the region, to a lot of uh, animals and wildlife, and also to the global climate. Um, we spent time looking at what was happening in the timber sector in the Republic of Congo and Gabon because of, as you also talked about, the growing uh, trade coming from the region. More than 50% of the timber coming from Africa is now coming from the Congo, and Gabon and Republic of Congo in particular are responsible for about 25% of the timber coming from Africa. So it's a huge uh, exponential growth in trade from that region, and actually the logging sector in Republic of Congo is actually the second largest sector for employment behind the government. So it, it's quite massive. Um, to go into our findings, we found that uh, the Chinese companies have been growing their presence over the last 20 years, particularly in the last 10 to 15, and found that there was a systemic levels of corruption uh, happening in, in both countries. Um, everything from, we can talk about these different issues in detail, but just to highlight a couple, uh, tax evasion, massive over-harvesting within concessions, um, totally uh, undercutting the export laws in the country, and also, yeah, ma massive over-harvesting. Thank you. So when when you say massive overharvesting, like like what, what does that look like on the ground? Are we talking about whole um, swaths of forest essentially just just with all the trees cut down and you know kind of nothing left? Or what 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 do we what what does it look like before and what does it look like after this process has been done? So the one important thing that we did find is is also that the concessions uh, being given for forestry in these countries is. Are, are huge and they're given for many decades. And a significant illegality we found is that many of them were being acquired through corrupt means and bribery. And one thing that is supposed to happen in order for them to be investing in a sustainable timber and logging sector is that there are management plans that are approved by the government that shows you how to harvest in a sustainable manner. 
And what we found is that many of these concessions have been operating for more than 10 years without approved management plans, which has been allowing the the companies to harvest uh, indiscriminately both species that are vulnerable, taking them when they're not allowed to take them, taking more of them that they're allowed to take. And basically the operating procedure has been to extract, as we found, as much timber as possible, as quickly as possible from these concessions. I guess the difficulty that I'm having with both what you're saying and in the report is that you keep coming back to this issue of corruption and what the government should be doing and sustainability. And these are expectations and standards that are very much applicable in the West or in industrial and advanced societies. But for the most part, in places like the DRC, in the Congo Basin, in the Republic of Congo, Gabon, where governance standards are quite weak. And and I hate to generalize here, but at the end of the day, it's not a secret that the Republic of Congo has endemic corruption, not just in its timber management, but across the society. And it it feels like when you read these reports, it's like shock, horror, there's corruption, and the Chinese are taking advantage of it. Um, I, I guess I'm just wondering if you guys are coming in at one standard, and the reality on the ground is, if you want to get anything done, regardless of whether it's good or bad, corruption is just kind of the name of the game and how you do things in this parts of the world where you don't have strong levels of governance. There are systems in place that both like in the EU and in the U.S. that there have been laws put in place to ensure and help support governance and rule of law in the supply countries. So, for example, it's illegal to import illegally harvested and sourced timber into the United States, into the European Union. Um, China does not have a law of this type. Uh, so they have uh, just voluntary guidelines to companies that they should obey the law in the country where they're operating. And so that certainly does not help uh, having companies be law-abiding in the way that they approach uh, timber sourcing and harvesting in the country. And I think there have been laws put in place in these countries in recent years to improve, uh, that are designed to improve development of the sector and value added in the sector in the countries. Um, For example, declaring that only 15% of the timber can be exported as logs and 85% should be produced in the country. And and these Chinese companies have flipped that entirely on its head and are exporting about 85% in logs and only processing about 10 to 15% in the countries. But your report highlighted that those laws are not working because this timber is actually making it into places like Home Depot and into the European supply chains. There are also laws that say we shouldn't have conflict diamonds, conflict minerals, we shouldn't have cocaine, But yet those laws are really not powerful enough to withstand the force of the corruption and the supply chains that are bringing all of this stuff in. So I guess I guess I'm just curious about the expectations that one has. Now, it's certainly good to set an ideal, but the reality is that these laws are incredibly hard to enforce. There certainly is a lot of change that needs to happen on the ground in both Gabon and Congo to deal with the corruption and to turn the system around. Uh, It does not help, certainly, that 85% of this timber is going to China and that there's no disincentive there for them to follow the laws. There's nothing dissuasive. The timber is not going to be picked up once it enters the market in China. It's it's essentially able to be marketed as though it was uh, received legally. So these are some avenues in which the consumer 
country and demand countries can help reinforce and support efforts underway in these countries to change the, the corrupt systems. So I think they're incredibly important. And I think the, the timber that is coming, has been highlighted in our report is coming to the U.S. has led to an, an investigation that is ongoing right now. Um, so these are important elements that ha can help stop the overharvesting back in the country. One of the realities that we picked up in previous conversations about logging in, in Africa and in, 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 in relation to China is that, you know, there's this massive imports of African wood to China um, because there's so much timber processing and furniture making in China. And then once once it's processed, then it tends to go to the US and the EU. Um, so it looks like everything's kind of being sucked in China, but into China, but then a lot of it ends up in the US and the EU. Is, is, was that the pattern that you saw in this case as well? I mean, China, because of the way that it um, sources and processes, uh, remains quite a bit of a black box of, of how that timber then comes out. And that's an important part of, of getting the right laws in place in China. Uh, certainly, some of it is being processed there and coming to the EU and the US. In this particular investigation, we had the opportunity to follow a direct stream um, to the US. And uh, but but China is is desiring the logs so that they can do the value-added processing in China. And and so they definitely that's going to be consumed domestically, but also exported. I, I would maybe like to make the differentiation between this uh, type of trade and, and the rosewood trade that I know you focused on in the past and, and we also focus on. Because this type of logging is happening very much in the formal logging sector. And so it has the the guys certainly are being sanctioned in the countries and are and is designed to lead to economic development and as I've talked about ideally sustainability in these countries is the goal and so I think the fact that and and, and also the fact that the wood and the timber being used in this case is high value timber which is making a lot of money for the companies and the individuals involved uh, but it is timber that it, other timber can be used for what this is is used for. Um, and being processed for both in the Chinese market and also in the EU and the US. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Witt University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. So let's talk about one company in particular that your report focuses on, and it's a company called Dejia Group. Uh, it's run by a gentleman by the name of Xu Gongde, and he apparently is quite a character, and he's been around for a very, very long time in the Congo Basin. Uh, Dejia is a major player there. You guys write that they control over 1.5 million hectares in the Congo Basin. And so they are, what it seems like from your report, the biggest player that's out there. Now, I looked up today to see if there was any reaction from Dejia, the company. So I think it's fair to say that these are just your findings in the report. We have not heard publicly from Dejia or from any other third-party source, their side of the story. So I just, I think that's important to put that out there, that there are other sides to this story. But your allegations are that, and from your findings, that Deja uh, is playing a very detrimental role in the logging trade. In fact, I think the the part that I just giggled when I was reading it was that time after time it said Deja senior executives or Deja officials said that they bribe local officials. 
they just like kind of told you that they're bribing people. I mean, it wasn't even secret. It's very transparent on their side. Um, I just, I thought that I, that honesty is refreshing mm-hmm. in this day and age, to be honest with you. So, um, but why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the Jia and their role in the Congo Basin, given that so much of your report focuses on them? Sure. Uh, I would love to talk about that. I think that uh, what I would like to say is that for, for the part that made you, as you said, um, chuckle a little bit reading about it, I mean, I think it, it goes very much to the heart of the lack of concern about enforcement of the law in the countries that that people are so willing to speak openly about the various levels of corruption. I also, and and the reason that we focused on Deja in the report is because they were really the, the leader sort of breaking new ground in the country 20, 25 years ago to establish this model of extreme exploitation and evasion of, of the law. Um, in, in these countries. And there are many, many other um, Chinese and other Asian companies that have followed in their footsteps. So I would like to just emphasize that what I'm about to talk about with the Deja Group is by no means the only operator in this way in the region. They are the largest that we found, the conglomerate of companies that make up the Deja Group. And, and like I said, the forerunners that have really kind of perfected this model, I would say. And they so basically what we did find and and one other thing i should probably stress is that while this was a multi-year investigation the information that was shared with us about the level the illegalities you know the the, the over harvesting the ignoring the the export laws the tax evasion the bribery the corruption was shared with us within the first days, really on the ground. So this is not something that, you know, takes a long time to develop relationships to understand how this works. It, w- it was a pretty, pretty open story. So you, you mentioned in the report that, um, that Jinping, um, and is, is, is involved as, um, so he is a, he's a, a, a Sino-Gabonese, um, politician, very prominent politician who, um, who was at the head of the, of the African Union Commission for, for several years. Um, and he's, he's a fascinating figure in, um, in China-Africa relations. Um, I, I was wondering if you could kind of clue us in about how he fits into the story. Sure. So, so Jean Ving, as you as you've noted, is a, a very prominent figure, and he is related to Mr. Xu, who controls the Deja Group, and he really helped him get his footing in industry in Africa in the '80s and early '90s. And so, Mr. Xu actually controls many, many different types of industry in many groups, and moved into timber over 20 years ago as part of that. And, and has certainly benefited from his relationship to Mr. Jinping from everything that we've been able to observe. And, and it is this type of basically high level connections. Um, you have Mr. Jinping in Gabon, um, Minister Henri Jumbo in, in Republic of Congo, who's been, uh, in high government positions there for more than 20 years that help facilitate and allow these companies to get the foothold and uh, and establish this type of position in the industry in the region. I'm just curious about where you think the impetus for change will come. When you read, the, when I read your report, it's a very depressing report because I think what the Chinese have done more than say the previous time of resource exploitation in Africa, which was during the colonial period, is they've mechanized it. So there, the efficiencies with which the Chinese are bringing to resource extraction is something that the Belgians could have only dreamed of or the French could have never have imagined. But by bringing in this heavy equipment, 
And by being able to clear cut at a speed and pace that is just eye-watering, um, that's what's so terrifying about it. And again, that's not only the Chinese, and it's not fair to only pick on them, but we're in an era now where technology can really make it go so much faster. I guess my question is, you know, from someone like you sitting in the United States, we go to Ikea, we go to Target, we want cheap furniture. People are not, I don't care what people say, they are not willing to pay more at Walmart for their products because of high quality sourcing and sustainability. They will tell you they want it, but at the end of the day, they want a 99 cent t-shirt. And wherever that cotton came from, the labor that went into making that, they don't care. This is the same problem that we're facing in the, the donkey uh, trade in, in, uh, for donkey skins in Africa, where consumers here in China are eating jiao, uh, which is an herbal medicine, and they're not thinking about the consequences of where that comes from. So I guess my question is, you know, jia is filling a need. The market like Home Depot and Menards and Ikea and whatnot, they are selling it. Consumers want cheap, low-quality, low-priced furniture. And where is the impetus for change? Are you just screaming into a vacuum that nobody's listening? Uh, I take your points, but I don't think so. I do think that things are beginning to change. And in particular, um, the there's definitely interest in the region um, from, from parts of the government to bring change. Uh, it, it, particularly, I would say there are concerns around the, the significant tax evasion that we've highlighted. Uh, the fact that the story that's being told in Republic of Congo that they're developing a, a you know a high processing industry and a lot of the sawmills that have been for the, been built by the Chinese are largely for show to anybody like government inspectors that come and things like that to check if they're actually processing high percentages of wood they're really processing very low percentages but have them there to show that they could. Um, and and I think these things both from from individuals in the country getting more concerned about it, government officials getting worried about wanting their countries to develop more and how much they're realizing that they're losing through this process is going to bring some change. We've seen crackdowns in Gabon over the last couple of years on illegal loggers there. And also we've heard from various parts within the European Union as I said before, the timber that's being exported through the Deja Group right now and a significant chunk that's being exported from the Congo Basin can can be substituted with other timbers. And I think um, European importers, because of the law there, are concerned about the the real um, levels of illegality in the market for okume, which we focused on in particular as a species coming from the Congo region. So I think we are seeing change. I think if you look also in China at some of the other... Um, markets, there is getting to be greater sensitivity, I think, and understanding and awareness. It certainly is important to continue the awareness campaigns and increase efforts at traceability and transparency so consumers have a better understanding right up front of what their choices are before they buy. Um, if one is a consumer who is, you know, wandering around Home Depot um, or in China or in the EU, um, what what can individual consumers do to to try and make sure that they what they're getting is not environmentally destructive, but also to put pressure on, uh, you know, on 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 these stores and on these companies and and governments generally to to try and get some change. Well, I think they could definitely, they definitely need to be asking before they buy wood products, um, where the timber is coming from. Uh, 
and get more information from companies about that because that is going to build the pressure for companies to to know more themselves to reinforce what the laws are asking them to do and ideally to to seek more disclosure at the public interface you know with consumers where some of that information is more clearly listed and available so consumers can make better choices so that's certainly an important part and also to ask their governments to continue to enforce the laws to ensure that they are not unwitting consumers of this forest devastation I guess I'm curious because the Chinese government will say that they do not support Chinese companies violating any local laws. Did you have any interaction with uh, any of the Chinese embassies or the Chinese government officials? And did they have any knowledge, as far as you know, about the actions and activities of Dejia? We've shared the information that we collected um, with Chinese officials. And, And my sense is, you know, China... There's the there's a, a great international agreement called the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, and increasingly uh, uh, plant timber species have been listed, tree species have been listed on that as as a, endangered by trade, and China has been quite good at enforcing those laws. There's still a lot that needs to be done there for sure. But for example, a case that we worked on a couple of years ago was looking at Koso rosewood coming from Nigeria to China, where China actually stopped massive quantities of it from coming into the country for a period because it did not have the correct permitting coming from Africa. Um, so I think these type of stories show that China is capable, certainly, of doing that and putting those type of systems in place, it's just absolutely incumbent upon them to do it for a lot for, for all timber species and not just for the few that are listed on, on the CITES, the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species at this point. How powerful do you feel reports like these are in pushing the Chinese government to action? Like in the past, we've seen criticism from Africa um, about issues like illegal wildlife trade actually managed to get China to to impose domestic bans on ivory trade. Um, but at the same time, in a lot of cases, it feels like China is completely impervious to this kind of re- um, criticism, including simply not commenting. Um, so, you know, kind of uh, how, how do you feel one should go, the rest of the world should go uh, about in pushing China and being a more responsible actor in, in this, these kind of fields? Well, well, that's a great question. And, uh, and it's, it's really the important question of how China is going to proceed forward in this space right now. They have, um, on the positive side, we've certainly seen them start understanding and focusing more attention on the illegal timber trade as a, as an important issue area. However, we have not seen them get to the point, as I, as I mentioned, they've put in place voluntary guidelines for their overseas businesses and how they should act. They have not taken the step to put in place a prohibition and to put in place greater oversight and enforcement of the timber coming into their to their country. And given that China is the largest processor and the largest importer of timber from around the globe, it is absolutely essential that they do something here in order to stem the tide and send the signals to the companies operating overseas that they're serious about this. The other recommendation that we have in, in our report, in addition to the importance of a prohibition in China, is that China enforce its its anti-corruption laws that, that say that Chinese um, citizens should not be bribing officials from overseas. Yeah, that's a big problem. I'm glad you, you, you brought up some of the recommendations because at the end of your report, 
you do break down a number of different recommendations for Gabon and the Republic of Congo, the U.S., the EU, China, and international organizations. We've already talked about what you think China should do. Uh, maybe we can close our discussion on what you think Gabon and the Republic of Congo should do based on uh, your findings. Sure. We recommend for Gabon and Republic of Congo that they immediately suspend operations of the Deja Group and their affiliates in the two countries. Uh, as we mentioned, they control a significant amount of land, 1.5 million hectares between the two countries. And this would be really imp important for sending a signal, not just to Deja Group, but to the other companies that are emulating them, that their type of harvesting and export practices and tax evasion will not be tolerated by the countries while they do further investigation of their own. And also that they launch an anti-corruption and tax evasion um, crackdown across the timber sector will be incredibly important because I think we just really need a reset in both these countries and uh, reset with governance that the law is going to be enforced and upheld. Lisa Handy is a senior policy advisor at the Environmental Investigation Agency in Washington. She's also an expert on illegal logging, wildlife trafficking, and forest conservation, and one of the co-authors of this really fascinating report, uh, sad, tragic, but nonetheless fascinating, toxic trade, forest crime in Gabon and the Republic of Congo, and contamination of the U.S. market. Uh, we'll have a link for it in our show notes and on all various pages, but if you want to get a copy of it and all this other great information on what EIA is doing. By the way, we've talked about EIA quite a bit over the years. Uh, they also did this great report of when Xi Jinping went to Africa. Uh, remember this, Kobus, uh, in that the ivory sales went up? <laughs> that was an EIA yes. report. Yeah, that, that was massive uh, so scandal. Done... It was great. Yeah, yeah, that was really fantastic. Um, Lisa, if people want to follow you and what EIA is doing, what's the best way for them to stay in touch? Sure, the best way to find our report, this report, and others is at www.eia-global.org. And this report, in particular, toxic trade, we have on our website in both English and in French the full report, and we have a very detailed executive summary in Chinese available as well. That's awesome. Why didn't you do the full report in Chinese? That seems like the people who need to read it the most. We, we may very well get there. Our, our, our executive summary is extremely detailed and um, we will, okay. given, given a bit more time, may put the full report in Chinese as well. Um, but we're certainly available Great. to well, answer questions and to follow up with anyone who's interested in learning more and taking action in this area. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Good work on the report. It was really, really important and very, very interesting to read. And we hope that everybody takes some time at least to read the executive summary, which is almost 10 pages long. The full report is almost 60 or 70 pages. There's lots of pictures, so don't worry. And uh, But it's a lot of, uh, it's just absolutely fascinating and on a very important part of the world that a lot of people don't know about. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, so uh, again, another depressing report on the environment. And, and it feels like every time we make progress on the Chinese and the environment in Africa, there's the reports like this that kind of set us back. And again, I think we need to be very, very specific here when we say the Chinese, that they were referring specifically to Dijia Group. They're not talking about the government. They are talking about government complicity in the sense that maybe the government knows this is going on, likely the government knows this is going on, and they're not enforcing their own overseas corruption laws. But at this point, I think we should be very specific about the actors who are involved in this, which for the most part do seem to be private sector companies, not even SOEs. That being said, 
the scale with which the Chinese are engaging African resource extraction is what is so concerning because it is on a pace and scale that we just haven't seen before, you know, in other parts of the world. And they're feeding both a massive Chinese economy at home and a global market. So it does seem like there is an insatiable demand for not only the wood, but also the wildlife, the, the seafood. I mean, you name it. And, and this, again, is one of the more concerning parts of the China-Africa relationship. Yeah, this is this is very very concerning. I mean, it's it's very concerning for Africa, you know, because of course it 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 means there's this kind of loss of this this natural resource that is irreplaceable. But it's also really concerning for everyone else, you know, because I mean, we we already saw recently that that temperatures in parts of the Middle East, um, places like Kuwait, for example, are exceeding human livability. Like we like you know the the, it's becoming so hot in, in deep summer um, in, in parts of the world that it will literally be impossible for people to go outside. Um, and there's there's a lot of uh, predictions that this is, is on track to start happening in places like South Asia over the next 10 to 20 years. Um, so, you know, the, the, the climate aspect of this is what makes me the most worried. Um, and, you know, China is actually, China tries to position itself frequently as a, a leader on climate mitigation. Um, and it has done a lot of, of really good stuff on climate mitigation. It, um, it's a leader um, in the world in, in the implementation of solar energy, for example. But... This doesn't look great, <laughs> and it's it's endangering everyone. Um, not not just the Africans. You know, it's this is this is bad news for for people everywhere. People in places like Canada, for example, you know that that's warming several times faster than than the rest of the than the world's average. So um, I think yeah, what we need is um, is the world to to start taking action on this. There's, there's no other way. Well. It once again comes down to this chronic problem in Africa of governance, is that the Chinese generally, I think you said this a couple of years ago, they will behave according to the, the rules and levels of governance of the host country that they're in. So, for example, when the Chinese are in Japan or in Singapore, um, I've never heard of any corruption issues. I'm sure they exist, but you barely hear of them. The Chinese, when they engage in the DRC or in Congo, um, you hear lots of stories like this. So it tends to be wherever they are, depending on the level of governance, that's how they will behave. There is not a universal standard of, of how the Chinese behave in different countries. Unlike, say, the Norwegians or the Dutch, you know, who are famous for their kind of adherence to very strict governance laws. When they're in countries that are poorly governed and don't have the anti-corruption laws in place that are, or that are enforced, um, they still are, for the most part, very, very clean. That isn't the case with a lot of Chinese companies. And so it's just interesting, I think, that if we can start to see the governance levels improve in places like Gabon, that would then have a ripple effect into so many different areas. It would improve the taxations. It would improve the environmental protection. It would provide better services to people. And so really, at the end of the day, the burden is on the African countries and to eliminate the corruption that exists there. And if that can happen, then anything is possible. And I think that's where we have to start. And we talk about agency all the time on this show. And agency for me in this sense is really starting at home and really making sure that, you know, government and governance in these different countries are responsive to the needs of the people and the resources that are in their countries. 
Yeah, I think it's also time, you know, for Africa to start thinking of itself as an actor in the world. Um, there's, you know, the, the default position within and outside of Africa is to think of the world acting on Africa. You know, act, Africa being essentially a passive actor and the world kind of impinging on it. But Africa is having, you know, on the in, on the environmental front, Africa is actually playing a terrible role in the world in, in some ways. You know, it's it's a massive export of oil, it's a massive export of coal, um, it's it's building coal coal powered uh, power stations left and right, including in South Africa, um, and it's it's managing. You, what is a, you know a, a massive resource to to keep the world cooler and and to to manage climate change? It is destroying that resource. So you know this is terrible for Africa, but it's terrible for everyone else. Um, and I think it's really time for Africa to start thinking about its role as an as a climate actor in the world. I think it's it's long overdue. So that'll do it for this edition. We'd love to hear what you think, Cobus and I. Uh, we take our emails anytime you want to send them to us. Send us your questions, send us your feedback, your comments. We've got lots of different social channels for you to engage in. Also, these are the kinds of stories that end up in our weekly email newsletter that goes out every Monday. Cobus and I work on that on the weekends, and we curate the best stories of the week from the best sources, so you don't really have to. It's a great resource if you just want to kind of get caught up and you don't really want to follow uh, Twitter and Facebook and all the social channels so closely. So uh, go to our website at chinaafricaproject.com and sign up. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. We'll be back again next week when Kobus is back in Johannesburg. Kobus, enjoy the rest of your time in New York. For Kobus van Staden in New York, I'm Eric Olander in Shanghai. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash chinaafricaproject to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.